0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, folks, welcome to Sex, Love, and Addiction. I am um, honored and privileged to have one of my colleagues from Psychology Today uh, appear today and join us today. And what I mean by that is I have been reading some of the blogs that I write and some of the blogs that uh, Dr. Seltzer writes, and I thought, wow, we should have him come on here and talk because I really like what he has to say. So let me say a few things about him. Dr. Lee Seltzer actually has had not one but two doctorates, one in English, and he was an English professor for over a decade, which is a form of therapy, I'm sure in itself, and the second in psychology where he's been in private practice with individuals, couples, and families for over 30 years. And by the way, folks, if you want to know who writes the good blogs, it's those of us who've been doing this work for a very long time. And um, I'm going to have Dr. Seltzer let you know how to reach him later in the conversation. Lee has made use of both both of his PhD degrees by writing a really important book on the advanced therapeutic techniques called Paradoxical Strategies in Psychotherapy. And that book explains to professionals how to use a variety of unusual and non-conventional methods to intervene in cases that forward uh, the work when the movement has stalled out. It's actually an approach I have to say to you guys that I've always loved, um, paradoxical work, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. Even though I understand that you guys aren't therapists, I think you will mostly, or or, those of you who are will get this, will probably gain from understanding how we do this piece of the work. Um, as I said, Dr. Seltzer is also a prolific blogger for Psychology Today. He's written over 400 articles for this prominent psychologically oriented website. And his varied articles on topics such as narcissism, relationship challenges, compulsive and addictive behaviors, problems with anger, and how to prove your self image have received over 30 million views. Congratulations, Dr. Seltzer. Oh, thank um, you. And welcome. Glad to be here. So tell me, um, you've been writing a lot about intimacy and relationships, fidelity and all of those things. And and some of it's really been catching me recently. What has uh, focused you in that particular direction in all the writing that you do do?
1: The main thing is that all relationships, intimate relationships are going to be challenging because to have an intimate relationship, you have to be willing to trust the other person. You have to be willing to make yourself vulnerable. Obviously, if you're talking to your mate about the weather, And anything deeper than that is like uh, off the table. What it means is the relationship is going to be very constrained and it's hardly going to be fulfilling at all. Superficial. That's right. Well, I would just add some people have a really hard time being closely connected to their partner because in growing up, they didn't have a secure attachment bond with their family. So, they're very wary of sticking their neck out. It could be that they were often subject to disapproval and rejection. Mm. And the way they know to secure an adult relationship is basically play it close to the vest, not say anything that might lead to rejection. Because for a child, any rejection is sort of a mini abandonment, mm-hmm. and it leads to a lot of anxiety. And sometimes that initial self protective programming stays indefinitely unless there's an opportunity for it to be reevaluated, reassessed, and the person has a much better self validating image of themselves. So you're kind of hinting at why we choose the partners we choose
0: and why we often end up in the types of relationships that we do because they mirror what we learned, the strengths we have, the the situations that are familiar to us.
1: At the same time, they reactivate old defenses that mm-hmm. prevent us from getting what we really want, what we actually yearn for.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So then uh, I, I'm going to say this, and you're going to laugh maybe.
0: So love and pair bonding in itself is paradoxical.
1: <laughs> in the sense that it... It requires a certain amount of trust of the other person? No, that we long for that
0: which is frightening to us. You know, we long to be close. We long to be connected. But for many of us, intimacy is scary, overwhelming, unfamiliar, uh, odd, weird, you know, depending on how we grew up and what our experience of attachment was. For some people, at least many of the addicts I work with, as much as they long, Deeply for intimate connection and for their loneliness and sense of isolation to go away, their actions and behaviors do the very
1: things that drive away intimacy, relationship, and connection. I think that's well said. And I also think that unless a person really feels secure within themselves, then they're not going to be in vulnerable mode. They're going to be in self protective mode. Mm. So, although, yeah, they long. For an intimate relationship, particularly if they didn't feel that they had one with their parents, Mm. they're going to safeguard themselves, against an intimate relationship because that very early became associated with excessive vulnerability. And remember, a child doesn't have the emotional resources that an adult has. So, if a child is overwhelmed because they're not getting the attention, they're not getting the sucker, they're not getting the support that they need. Or too much attention, too much overwhelm, too much stimulation, too much
0: narcissistic parenting can go the other way too, where the child doesn't exist as a separate being. And then they also have the same experience of fear of intimacy. But please continue. Okay. But what you're
1: saying is also paradoxical. And that is, a child needs to feel that they can be themselves in their relationship with their parents that they don't have their parents helicoptering over them. At the same time, a child, if that child feels engulfed, will push their parents away. Right. So a secure attachment bond means that because they feel secure, they can kind of go out on their own a little bit. And the parents will allow them to do that because their parents want them to develop in a healthy way. But if their parents are overprotective, then it's too close. So, what you need is an ideal, what would be ideal in a relationship, whether it's for a child or whether it's for an adult, is that there'd be a secure attachment and there'd be plenty of room for the child to sort of detach and learn how to be their own person and learn how to develop their self-confidence without having to depend on their parents. You said something I thought that was extraordinarily important and I'm actually dealing with
0: it in a in a non-sexual personal family relationship pers- myself where I have a family member who I love and adore and think she's wonderful and a, a kid in her 20s a niece or a nephew that kind of thing and I suddenly realized over a, I've only known them well for about a year that I've only been getting the good news I've only been seeing the parts of me them that they this particular young woman in my life she hasn't really been telling me about the challenges, the struggles, the the hidden things that are going on that she doesn't want me to see. And I've been trying to explain to her that, and she knows she's in her twenties, that giving people who you think they want you to be in order to build a relationship is only destined to build mistrust. Because when that person realizes that they didn't get the whole story, and now they've got this person who does this and this and says that and that, they're going to kind of either question themselves or question you. And that's really what you're talking about, I think, is the idea of I'm going to put my best self forward, whatever I think that is, in a way to please you in the, whatever way I think that is. And I'm going to hide anything I don't think you're going to like about me or that you think might I might get rejected for. And you're saying that is
1: a, a real problem in intimate relationships. And that intimate relationship can be between you and your spouse or between you and your children and even your grown children. The main thing, it is a universal need to be able to influence others. We all have that innate drive to have some influence in the lives of others. And that can happen unless those people are willing to confide in us, and they're going to be much less willing to confide in us if we sit in judgment on them. But if we can always validate what they're saying, not from our point of view, but from their own then they're going to be much more willing to take the risk and disclose to us things that might be too embarrassing or potentially shameful to disclose to someone else. So then does that mean that the person, and and
0: this is very true for most of the addicts I work with, who are living a double life, whose partners don't fully know what they're doing outside the relationship. I've always thought that that meant on some level that in a narcissistic way, they could never really feel loved. Because if I know that You don't know about parts of me. If I know that there are things I am not telling you, if I know that, for example, if you knew this about me, you wouldn't want to be with me, then how could I ever accept your loving
1: without questioning it? Well, that's a a modic faceted question. The main thing is to me, it's synonymous to be authentic in your relationship with others and to be courageous enough to be vulnerable in your relationship with others. So basically if you are willing to have people know you even in your childhood wounded self then you have to get to the point where you don't feel shame about it you realize that there may be deficits in your self image because your parents were incapable of really responding adequately to your needs but once you become an adult and develop emotional resources to validate yourself then You can independently pursue an intimate relationship with someone else. And that's maybe the ultimate paradox that to have an intimate relationship with another person, you need to feel independent from them Mm -hmm. because the more dependent you feel on them, the more you feel you have to manage their impression of you, which means you can't be authentic.
0: I guess I'm a little confused on on the word dependency because it seems to me that interdependency people... Filling each other's strengths and weaknesses with each other's strengths. I mean, that's sort of part of the game of relationships is to depend on each other. So, uh, but, but I think I'm
1: par- you're probably talking about something more complex. Well, I am talking about interdependence because what it means is you can stand on your own two feet. You don't have to lean on anyone else, including your spouse, but you want to kind of face life together. You want to be able to share your experiences, including your vulnerabilities, with each other. And when a couple can do that, then they really have met whatever secret aspirations they have had to have an intimate relationship. So what do I say to the guy who says to me, look, you know, I understand my wife needs to know
0: something about what I was doing, but I can't tell her this, or I can't tell her that. Because if, I, if she really knew about some of these things, she would leave me, she would abandon me, she would never accept it. No matter how sick I've been, I'm not going to be able to get well in this relationship if I tell her the truth. What do you say to that man, knowing that his spouse at the other end is thinking, if I don't really have some sense of what's happened, I don't know if
1: I can stay. I think you have to approach something like that gingerly, because (laughs) you may not know in advance what the wife could emotionally handle in terms of what her cheating spouse might share with her. At the same time, if she can understand that her spouse's addictive behavior is addictive, and when I use the word addictive, I almost always put the word compulsive in front of it. Sure. And if the behavior is compelled behavior, then although the wife might say, well, he chose to do that, if it's a primal defense, and the defense has like taken over his personality, yes. then ultimately, yeah, you can blame him if you need to feel self-righteous about it. But he's sort of a victim of his own hurt that he's trying to protect through distancing.
0: Lee, I want to be now an angry wife. <laughs> not, my, not the role I always take, but I want to respond to you and say, okay, so you're telling me that this man that I loved, that I adored, who I had two children with and who I've depended on to have my back and never hurt me as best he could. Now I know that he's gone out and been with 30 prostitutes, had three affairs, um, spends half the week at strip clubs, knowingly doing things that he knows would
1: hurt me if I found out about it. and I'm supposed to feel empathic for him? I would never ask somebody to feel empathic when that would only make them feel that much more vulnerable in the relationship. Yeah, yeah. They're entitled to hang on to their anger and resentment as long as they need to. Yes. But basically, the question to ask is, if you're ready to leave the relationship, I'm not going to tell you not to, but at some point, I'm wondering whether your anger and resentment begins to put you in a state of elevated stress and distress, and whether that is ultimately helping you or the
0: relationship.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you're, I, I couldn't agree with you more in the sense that uh, with wounded and betrayed spouses and partners, we need to really give them room to feel their hurt, feel their pain, feel the loss. But at a certain point that the, the very overt expressions of rejection and anger, I mean, at a certain point, like six months or so, can become counterproductive because you want to bring that person who's working on themselves closer, and your anger just pushes
1: them further away. Right, and it's, it's like that can only be approached when the cheated upon person has enough willingness to make themselves vulnerable again in the relationship. Often they want to kind of punish, like, I will punish you for a while, and then
0: I'll consider being vulnerable to you again.
1: Right. And then the question is, at what point does the punishing simply become two wrongs do make a right? Right, right. Because it's like punishing your children. I believe that when children misbehaves, it's an opportunity to teach them something that would either help them better control their impulses or help them better understand why their behavior is ultimately harmful, not just to the family, but to them themselves. So that's why I'm not big on parental punishment, because I think when a child misbehaves, it probably has more to do with their impulsivity, which is what makes them children in the first place, or it may have to do with the fact that they weren't able to get the parent's attention any other way. So they act out. Hey there. I
0: sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love, and addiction podcast. There are two topics I think would be really useful that you have touched on that I'd love you to talk about. One is, what are the qualities or characteristics or abilities that you see either innate or teachable to couples that are able to work their way through great difficulties versus what is absent or missing or not being gained by the couples who are unable to resolve great difficulties or challenges? What do you think are the qualities
1: of couples that are able to work through all of this? I think it has to do with their emotional resources. If they are more self-dependent rather than other dependent, then they may not feel that they need to protect themselves against the other person who has after all betrayed them as much as a couple in which uh, they haven't developed their emotional resources and are therefore much more defenses. No offense, but
0: can you say that in like real sort of basic language? What is it this couple has that can do repair versus the couple that just doesn't do it very well?
1: I guess a certain fortitude.
0: About like we're in here to stick it through no matter what, like fortitude about the relationship or fortitude of character. I'm going to push you here because couples want to know, like, how do we know that we have what it takes to make it through all of the challenges we're having? And if we don't have what it is, how can we get it if we
1: want to stay together? Can they talk about their hurt. Because if they express vulnerability, they're much better likely to reach the other person. In other words, the first thing that has to happen when you're dealing with a couple in which one person has been sorely betrayed by the other is to get the person who betrayed them to have more empathy for how their behaviors have adversely affected their partner. And it's best if you can do that without a way of shaming them understanding that a lot of addictive behavior is a way of defending against shame.
0: So we're going to talk about defending in a second. I really like that term. But I think, let me clarify what you're saying is, in part, if one member of a couple has caused great pain to the other, that the beginning of the healing has to be their willingness to be open and honest and take responsibility and be accountable and begin to recognize in one way or the other, how their behavior has truly hurt the other. Because I've heard, and I'm using men who cheated. It could be women who cheated. I've heard men who cheated come into my office and say, oh, my wife doesn't look at me the same way. I don't think she'll ever love me in the same way. I'm never going to be the kind of husband I wanted to be. And I start to realize that's not empathy. That's all about them. And then when I say, well, but if empathy would sound more like you're worried about how they're feeling, how they're getting through the day, what this has cost them. It seems to be a bit of a later stage thing to be acquired in some of the folks that I work with. But I hear you saying empathy for the hurt you have caused is a primary issue in helping with healing. What else is required for couples to heal from a a great disruption like uh, profound
1: infidelity? I don't know that there's any simple answer to that. Empathy on the part of both parties, eventually, I think is required. Yes. And the main thing is there's such a thing as healthy guilt. And I think it's important That the party who has done the betraying experience guilt deep enough that pretty much ensures the other person that now that they really get it, now that they really get how much harm they've done to the other person, that it would simply be unthinkable to do it again. The other thing is simply dealing with the addictive behavior, understanding if that's a way of self-protection, then there are other ways of dealing with fear in the relationship, because fear is one of the most basic emotions, by engaging in some behavior that is much less likely to hurt the other party. Because if the other party is going to, the the party that was betrayed is going to need substantial amounts of time to even begin to entertain the idea of trusting their betraying spouse again, then the spouse may need to say, okay, Can I find other things, even though my partner keeps distancing me, to make me feel less ashamed without going back into that addictive process?
0: So I just want to say, without being in our world, you certainly mirror it with your beliefs because you know, for partners to get to a point where they can uh, be less angry and gain empathy, where uh, someone who's been cheating or acting out can begin to understand how that affected the partner for partners to understand, someone who's been cheated on, that they may have to get a lot of their emotional needs met and need to by people other than the person who hurt them so that they can be stronger in going back and working in that relationship on their pain. Um, Those are all really important clues to healing. So it's good to hear you say all of that. I, I didn't hear on the partner's part, and maybe I missed it. We talked about empathy being, you know, empathy for the cheating, the harm, the hurt that I've caused in the beginning of really saying, Hey, I know I did this. I know how it hurt you. Here's how it hurt you. It's my problem. This is what I'm doing about it. Those are things that are kind of vital at the end of the person who's been doing the acting out or causing the harm. But what are some skill sets or needs or strengths that a partner would need to have having gone through this kind of wounding? to be someone who could turn around and say, okay, I think I can
1: get through this and and stay here and make it work. The other thing is how much compassion do they have for themselves? Because I think all of us have certain addictive tendencies. they are actually ways of keeping ourselves safe. Wait a
0: minute. Have you been watching my chocolate chip cookie intake? I'm just checking. Not at all. Okay. Well, I
1: I don't want to read into it, but okay. (laughs) Please continue. See, the other thing is You could ask the cheated-upon spouse, what have they done to protect themselves and to keep themselves at a safe distance from the other party? And they're going to say, there is nothing in hell that I could have done to
0: keep this man from cheating. Are you telling me that there's something I could have done to keep him from cheating? That's what they would say.
1: Then See, the main thing is I would be very slow in putting out the question, making sure that it would be understood in the way I would intend it to be. To be understood. So, for instance, my guess is not a few women might, as a result of their partner's cheating, uh, kind of overeat to dull some of their feelings. Oh, they may too take up other – well, listen, when your
0: life – when the trapdoor – pulls open and your life, you know, and you're dropping through it into the mess. Yeah, people will spend, they'll eat, they'll do all kinds of things, smoke, they'll try to make themselves feel better because they feel like they're—they the rug's been pulled
1: out from under them. That's true. And what you could clarify to them, wow, this really is an impasse and how could it not be? Mm-hmm. Because you're going to look for things that will comfort you. You don't trust your spouse to comfort you. It could be spending more time with friends which would then isolate your spouse, and addictive behavior thrives in isolation. It could be a way of sort of replacing him while you haven't yet divorced him, so you don't feel as vulnerable, and you have every right to do that. The question is, have you done some things to kind of keep him at a distance that basically have kind of fed behaviors that maybe have been problematic for you too? In other words, if you Eight as a way of comforting yourself. If you spent more time with the children to sort of put him on the margin, because anything that's going to feed the addicts isolation is going to be fueling the addiction. You're right.
0: I think that's a tentative, careful, over time kind of thing, <clears throat> because I, you know, a, a, you are right, and I never want a partner to feel like I am responsible for your cheating. But I do think that in terms of each partner making them feel safe, more regulated, more comforted, that for them to each learn what the emotional triggers are for each other and then to move in and lean into being more mutually supportive rather than whatever patterns they have in the past can absolutely help improve the Improve the behavior, but I want I want to get back to the other question I had for you, which is this whole idea of defenses. So you know that's a therapy term. I I pretty much know what it means, but I'm thinking that many people may not. And so, for example, if my Uh, dad was violent and I used to watch him beat my mom and then he would walk out and my mom wouldn't have time for me. And so I experienced a lot of abandonment and violence, let's say, in my first five or six years. How would that play out in my needing some kind of defense from intimacy in adult life or avoidance of intimacy? I mean, can you kind of get in there and say a little bit more about that?
1: I think what we learn from our family when we're young is whether we're living in a world where we can trust others or a world where we can trust only ourselves and we're better off cultivating an attitude of cynicism and maintaining a certain distance from others. So I would say that the addiction didn't start after marriage, that it was always there, maybe not in the same form, meaning that the addict has to look at negative programming that may have begun all the way back in childhood. And that may take looking
0: at all the ways they've escaped, whether that was food or drink or whatever they did, the, the affairs or whatever might be the end point, or just one of the many. right Is there some kind of message that you would give to struggling couples that would be kind of overarching, and I don't mean to be trite, but you know to hang in there to to really do their best despite the pain to listen to one another and where that pain comes from. I mean, what would be a couple of things that you would say to couples that are really trying to make it work but are just so wounded by whether it's drugs and alcohol or sexual acting out or whatever the problem is that's occurred in the relationship. What what things would you say to the couple that's really trying but but don't know if they can hang in there with each other?
1: They may be so focused on the betrayal that they can't see beyond that. So sometimes it's useful to say, "Did you share very personal things with one another during courtship. Mm -hmm. And what made your courtship so much more fulfilling and so much more exciting than it became later on? Was it because you dared to share yourself at a more intimate level because you wanted to know the other person and you were seeing the other person as not simply a part of you yet? It's when you see the other person as maybe a vital part of yourself that you feel you have to be very careful. But if they can remember the chances that they took, the risks that they took during courtship, and understand if they ever want to get anything back as regards feelings of being in love, they have to, at their own speed, of course, be willing to take certain risks because they can have the relationship that's eluded them for so long, unless bit by bit by bit, they take the dare, in a sense, to kind of disclose who they are to the other person, focusing on their hurts. You never gain 100% trust when you've lost it to a major degree, and you only get it back uh, by degrees. But if you want to help them see their potential in a more positive light, it's a matter of helping them to understand just what it would take on each of their parts if they're going to rebuild, reconstruct the relationship.
0: Folks, this is Dr. Lee Seltzer, and you can find him uh, regularly blogging for Psychology Today on intimacy relationships and the issues we've been talking about. Tell me, Dr. Seltzer, if people wanted to reach you or get a hold of you or ask you a question, get your book,
1: find out how to have therapy with you, what are the best ways for them to reach you? In order to read my various posts for Psychology Today, the best thing to do would be to put in my name, Leon Seltzer, plus... Evolution of the self, because that's the name of my blog site. If you go to Psychology Today and find my blog site or my bio page, uh, you can always shoot me off an email if you have a quick question, or if you wanted to arrange for some consultations via phone or Skype. If you if you live in the San Diego area, obviously I, I could see you in person, but the best way of reaching me is probably through Psychology Today. Since uh, they will give a phone number to you, they will also give you my bio page where you could easily ask me a question. There's a window for that. So there are various ways of getting in touch with me or reading some of my posts on intimacy or narcissism or relationships because those are the subjects I've written about most.
0: And let me tell you, folks, I I really mean this. I I have never formally, and we've met at a conference, but we've never really sat down and had lunch or dinner. We've never seen each other involved in the work that we do in a deep way. But I read this man's blogs and I thought, boy, I have to have him on the show because the ways that he is writing about intimacy relationships, early wounding, and healing are really... a a psychological mirror, if you will, of what we do in the addiction world. And uh, it's really, it's a, it's a grace-based experience to speak with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Seltzer.
1: Well, I'm certainly grateful for the opportunity of being with you and talking about a subject that I think is very dear to our hearts. And, and by the way, Paradoxal
0: Interventions, I just want all of you to know, this is a, a key piece of doing really, really good psychotherapy is being able to pull a good paradoxical intervention out of your back pocket. I know this, especially working in treatment centers for 25 years. And I really want to acknowledge your writing about that because it is undervalued and greatly appreciated to use that kind of work. And I, I thank you for that too. Oh, you're most welcome, Rob. Thank you, Dr. Seltzer. And folks, we will talk to you soon. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com.